The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Today, we are going to revisit one of our favorite topics on this show, that is electric vehicles. And we're going to go specifically to the United States. And that's because this has been a really interesting week in that space with developments in regard to the Inflation Reduction Act and announcements about things like the Cybertruck. But before we go there, let's talk a little bit about the current state of play. At the state level, you actually have California, which has one of the highest electric vehicle ownership rates in the world, backed up by an extensive charging network to service its fleet. But with the U.S. as a whole, the nation is lagging behind China and Europe in terms of electric vehicles sold and the proportion of new car sales that electric vehicles actually make up. When we look at the manufacturers in the U.S., like GM and Ford, they recently delayed their near-term EV sales targets, citing falling demand as the primary reason. But does this reason actually hold up when we're looking at the hard data that we have available to us right now? Well, to answer that question, we have EV analyst Corey Cantor. He sits on our advanced transport team, and he returns to the podcast to give us a review of the U.S. electric vehicle market and discuss BNF's figures. They indicate that U.S. EV sales are not only rising, but are actually about to pass an important milestone. We also get into some of the new entrants on the show an electric vehicle manufacturer called Rivian, who recently ended their exclusivity deal with Amazon for their commercial vehicles and are now attempting to cross the EV valley of death where a startup tries to scale to mass production. We also assess the BNF data about whether being in a red or a blue, that is Republican or Democrat state, means higher or lower rates of electric vehicle ownership. And some of the results might surprise you. Finally, we talk about the role that policy plays in electric vehicle ownership in the U.S., both in a national level and with the Inflation Reduction Act on a state-by-state basis, where further states are now joining California to match their domestic electric vehicle policies. To access insights and reports related to this episode, BNF subscribers are going to be able to find those at bnf.com, on BNF Go on the Bloomberg Terminal, or at BNF's mobile app. If you like this podcast, if you subscribe, you'll receive an update when we publish a future episode. And if you give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it'll make us more discoverable by others. But right now, let's jump into the conversation with Corey about EVs in the U.S. Corey, thank you very much for coming back on the show today. Thanks, Dana. Happy to be here. And we have you back because we're here to talk about the U.S. vehicle market again. And it continues to be an important theme on this show because transport-related emissions constitute the largest share of U.S. emissions overall. So it's worth spending our time on. And two of the large auto manufacturers in the U.S. are General Motors and Ford. And recently, they noted that they would be delaying their near-term electric vehicle targets and cited that there's falling demand for electric vehicles in the U.S. And I want to know from your perspective, have we seen a precipitous fall off in electric vehicle demand in the States? Yeah, Dana, interesting question. And quite frankly, this has been something that has been 
not only a discussion within the advanced transport team at the NEF, but really countless newspaper articles, uh, discussions in trade press like Inside EVs, uh, of course, covered by Bloomberg. And the answer is, at least as far as the data that we've received through the third quarter of this year, EV sales, both for battery electric vehicles and battery electric and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles is up above 50%. So BEVs through the first three quarters of 2023 are actually up 55% year on year over the first three quarters of 2022. We'll have to see what happens in this final quarter. There is an element of until we get the data to know for sure, I don't want to come on and say that there won't be less growth than in previous years. But I think the big caveat to what GM and Ford are saying that I've taken is growth expectations. So what did Ford and GM expect for their particular scale up of EVs? And how is that different from what has actually happened? And the more I kind of look at the data, the more I've been thinking, um, and I think a few of us on the team have been thinking, maybe this is more of a Ford and GM issue to date than an overall US EV market issue. And we're going to talk about, well, Ford and GM and then other manufacturers that are actually selling into the United States. But there is a whole world of different types of electric vehicles under different brands that are sold in different countries. I can think of a few off the top of my head that are China specific, like Build Your Dreams or BYD, which is what they go by. So let's just put the U.S. in global perspective for a minute. The U.S. recently hit a critical target of reaching 1 million in annual electric vehicle sales. Now, that was of September. What I'm asking is, is that a big deal? And is that leading the way or lagging behind other parts of the world? I mean, I think it's a big deal in the sense of the U.S.'s overall EV trajectory, right? Now, in terms of China and Europe, they hit 1 million passenger EV sales in 2018 and 2020 specifically. And again, that's with PHEVs included. But actually, when it comes to fully electric vehicles, the U.S. is only two years behind uh, Europe and China, which was more of a 2021 story. So PHEVs have played a larger role in the European market, for example, to date than they have in the U.S. In the U.S., given the dominance of Tesla, really the split on a quarterly basis is usually 80% fully electric vehicles and 20% plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. So I think in terms of EV share of sale, which is the other metric we cite a lot, the US is lagging quite a bit behind Europe. You know, you see countries like the UK around 22% or so. You see China, France, Germany more in the kind of low 30% uh, you know, quarterly range in the first half of the year. The US for the first half of 2023 was at about 9% EV share of sale. So again, in the terms of share of the overall market, definitely trailing. But in terms of absolute numbers, the US is starting to see EV growth at a pretty impressive rate. And last thing I'll say, Dana, is you know, we hit 1 million BEVs plus PHEVs in September. We put out a piece earlier this month saying that we expect in November, and I think the data will show it at the end of the week, that in November, there have been a million fully electric vehicle sales in the US with about a month to spare and all the data to come in. So we're not quite there yet with the data that we have, but we were quite close at the end of October. So we're, we're anticipating seeing that when the data comes in next week. Well, so let's talk about some brands and one of the new brands that is coming out is Rivian. But before we get to that, I actually think it's important to think about it in light of Tesla. One of the reasons I think people find Tesla so fascinating as a company is because they broke into what is a very capital intensive and very established market where you had a number of vehicle manufacturers, car manufacturers around the world that I could probably count on a certain number of fingers and toes. And they broke into that market and became, at least in the U.S., the dominant fully electric car in terms of sales. Rivian are now coming up as a intriguing option. Where are they at 
in this process? And are they following in the paths of Tesla? And are they going to be something we're going to talk about increasingly on the show? Or are they going to potentially not make it as far as they'd like? Because that is really the story of many vehicle startups over the years, given that it is this difficult place to break into. Yeah, and that is a a perfect segue and a perfect topic for how we should think about, I think, the EV industry writ large, not just in the U.S., but globally. My colleague Nico and I wrote this piece around Rivian's transition, arguing that their path towards that optimistic or positive outcome is getting clearer. This idea in clean energy finance around the valley of death, which is basically saying when you're an early stage startup, an early stage company, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of enthusiasm for an idea, and a lot of investors are likely to kind of prop a company up or be willing to invest in it. But then, of course, you need to show that your product over time is scaling up and can reach the mass market. And so you reach this valley of death in the moment where your your old news in the sense that you're not getting by on hype anymore, but you haven't made a profit yet and you haven't built a sustainable company. We've seen earlier this year around Proterra, for example, in the commercial vehicle space that had promising founder, a good story, good product, but just couldn't get all the way to profitability. Rivian, what we've seen in 2023 that makes me more optimistic about their chances in 24 is we've seen sales and production increase without any major battery issues. And I think that's kind of the name of the game for these EV makers. Even with Tesla, and I think part of the reason why there's always this angst around why isn't everyone scaling up so quickly? Why is this taking so long? Tesla really had about a decade between the initial Roadster in 2008 and the Model 3 in 2018 to really figure things out. And even if you cut off five of those years and say, okay, 2008 to 2013 really doesn't count because it was a lot of low volume models. The Model S came out for Tesla in 2013, and then it still took them five years to release a mass consumer model. So in the case of Rivian, they've only had their vehicles on sale since the end of 2021. So we're coming up on two years now. I think if we were at five years and Rivian hadn't really achieved, then you could basically say, okay, maybe they're floundering, but we've seen real growth in terms of their overall sales volume. I think it was up over 240% in terms of the quarters that we've seen this year compared to the previous year. Um, Again, the first through the third quarter. We have to see how the fourth quarter lines up, but they've been raising their guidance multiple times. So there's a lot to look forward to for them as we head into 2024, with the caveat being, you know, no major battery issues. There's even been some software hiccups, but Rivian's been able to adapt quite quickly to resolve those. Now, in addition to passenger vehicles, which we all like to talk about because we think about them in our daily lives, there are also those commercial vehicles that are moving things around and part of critically important supply chains. Rivian is looking to play in that space as well. Can you talk a little bit about their commercial fleet? Yeah, Rivian, I think early on was even more so known for their exclusivity deal with Amazon to provide them with commercial electric vans. So Amazon essentially signed a deal for 100,000 commercial EV vans from Rivian. Um, And for a while, the partnership kind of worked on both ends because Rivian could say, we have a set buyer, just like in other forms of clean energy, when you have a PPA, it's always more of a guarantee. But in recent years, I think the Amazon exclusivity contract became a little bit of a hindrance because Rivian couldn't go to the market, to Wall Street to say, hey, we're expanding our customer base because other people are interested in our commercial van. Now, to date, one of Rivian's problems has been they've had one facility in Illinois, and they've been making three different electric models, even four if you count there's two van variants. 
in one assembly plant. So every time you only have so many lines and so many workers, to have to make a bunch of different models in one place isn't the most efficient. But Amazon has been happy with the quality, and I think the drivers have been relatively uh, so as well. And now they've been able to get out of that exclusivity contract. So what Rivian's CEO said on the previous investor call is that they expect over the next couple of months to begin announcing other pilot deals with other companies who may be interested in electrifying. And Dana, to your point on emissions at the beginning, passenger vehicles make up a lot of those U.S. carbon emissions. But moving forward, the commercial space is going to be imperative to reduce those emissions, given that they make up a large part. Of course, Rivian really only focuses on the light commercial vehicle space. So we're not even talking about long haul trucking, uh, medium and heavy duty vehicles that we at BNEF have a whole team for. But again, they're early in the space. And by building that brand recognition and also most importantly, economies of scale, they have another potential moneymaker moving forward. Can we talk about one of the recent issues of the day, which was this strike by the United Auto Workers? How has that impacted some of the different companies that we've talked about thus far? And has it had a particular impact or less significant impact on the electric vehicle and hybrid space? Yeah, I think the UAW strike is going to be really fascinating to look at in four or five years. What I'm pretty confident about at this point is that the unions were mostly arguing over gaining back some of what had been lost in 2008. So for those of you who aren't familiar, right, the big three, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, mostly GM and and Stellantis went through tough times and had to be bailed out by the federal government. And so unions at that time gave up a lot in terms of pensions, in terms of wages, and even contracts in between that financial crisis and the most recent contract negotiations weren't as high of a raise uh, as the union workers may have wanted. So enter Sean Fain, uh, the head of the UAW who wins an election last year, and he takes a completely different negotiating tact from the previous UAW leaders who, uh, in fact, had gone, in some cases, in trouble for corruption. And Fain's perspective was, we're going to be more combative, we're going to not shake hands with the automakers to open the negotiations, and we're going to be quite difficult. And then striking, not all at one automaker, all plants, but surprising and popping up in ways that the automakers may not have expected. At the end of the day, basically, the UAW won about 20 5% in wage increases. For the purposes of our conversation, the most important gain moving forward that they achieved was around putting the battery plant joint ventures at GM and Stellantis under what is known as the UAW master agreement. Now, those battery workers aren't getting paid as much as an assembly worker yet. But what that means is that in the future, when UAW has to negotiate another contract in uh, May of 2028, about four and a half years from now, mm-hmm. they basically will be able to negotiate on behalf of not just the EV manufacturer but the EV battery workers. And so they can move in a collective unit. Prior to this negotiation, the UAW had to almost organize on a battery plant by battery plant basis, which was difficult, and even negotiate those contracts differently. So can't understate what that means moving forward. In terms of the upfront price of EVs, I think one thing, and it's not just union workers, because I think there's been a kind of, oh, because the UAW got 25% of wage hikes, GM and Ford are now even more in danger. And that may be true, but also GM and Ford have had other issues with EV scale up, including investing in battery manufacturing, including the dealer network. When you add all the some of these parts together, you can see why GM and Ford may be wanting to move these near-term targets back because they just aren't hitting the metrics that they need to hit and making enough profit in the time that they expected to. So on one hand, you have the wage hikes from the United Auto Workers. But on the other hand, you have this almost wind at the electric vehicle side 
of the industry's back in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, one of these days in the future, I will be able to make it through one of these shows without referring to the IRA, but today is not that day. And actually, this week in particular, there have been some announcements that pertain to the IRA. So, Corey, can you talk us through some of the more recent developments for electric vehicles and the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, happy to, Dana. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to be, or fortunately, from maybe the industry's perspective, it's going to be a while before you can talk about the EV industry without talking about the IRA. To break it down into a few things, firstly, the IRA credit as it pertains to electric vehicles, I like to break it into almost two different pieces. You've got the battery production tax credit up to $45 per kilowatt hour if you meet certain requirements. And that's really incentivized a lot of onshoring of battery manufacturing in North America, in the US particular. And so we at BNEF, as I've, I think may have said the last time we chatted, have tracked IRA investments since the law was signed in the uh, EV and battery supply chain. And so what we find is as of the beginning of November, there were over $100 billion in those investments here in North America. And so what that means is companies like Samsung, SKON, LG, they are uh, looking to build up these battery facilities. I mentioned joint ventures before. Some of those are included in that. Some of those are in addition. And then you also have the passenger EV tax credit the clean car tax credit, uh, which is $7,500. Starting in January, actually, that $7,500, which previously had only been receivable at tax time, is going to be possible at the point of sale. This actually makes the US EV tax credit more of a rebate, similar to some other countries. So Dana, if you go and you get that EV you've always wanted, you have to you know, be back here in the US. But if you go to a US dealer, as opposed to waiting for the following year's tax time, they can take $7,500 or $3,750 off right at the start, which means that EV ownership is going to become a lot easier for people who can't afford to wait a year to get that tax credit. Now, on the other hand, there is another provision that uh, just prior to our recording came up in some news stories around what is called a foreign entity of concern restriction. This term hasn't been fully defined, but a lot in the industry are waiting to see how strict this provision is before making future investment decisions or even future EV strategies in the U.S. marketplace. A lot of the thinking is and the kind of intent around the provision is to make the U.S. less reliant on China and other, I'd say, U.S. non-friendly countries. And so basically the thinking is we're going to be onshoring more of the free trade agreement countries with the U.S. and more of Mexico and Canada. And so we'll see how strict, because some have argued, you know, maybe having less stringent terms in terms of foreign entities of concern might be good for helping the industry move a little bit faster. And China has really built up a lot of battery expertise. So there's a bit of a push and pull with this. No matter how you slice it, though, this is big news coming over the next week or so. And starting in January, we're going to see how many EVs are actually able to receive the tax credit, because if you violate the foreign entities of concern provision, then that EV is going to be ineligible for either half or or the full tax credit, depending on how the rule is structured. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And adoption also differs from state by state. And one of the things that I'd like to draw a parallel with right now is renewable energy, where 
it has been a polarized issue where you've seen it as something that blue states are really a proponent of and then red states from an ideology standpoint are not necessarily a proponent of. However, we have this year seen a bit of a, a breakthrough on that in that Texas now has more wind capacity on their grid, ERCOT, than any other state. And what I want to know is with electric vehicles, are we seeing the same thing? Is it a polarized issue where blue states love electric vehicles and red states do not? Or is the function and the benefits of EVs that make them a very different car, has there been higher uptake in some red states over others? Dana, that's a really good question. And I think that's going to be one of the big questions moving forward. It's not so black and white. I, I always you know, come back to the point that it's more complicated than just blue states like it and red states don't. Um, and I'll give some examples. So I led a piece that we put out in September on U.S. state EV markets. And one of the charts we put out in there looked at the correlation between Biden vote share in 2020 and EV fleet share in 2022. And there was a, a fairly strong positive correlation, actually stronger than median income, which I was kind of surprised about. And so you saw states like California, states like Colorado, states like Washington that had high Biden vote share doing well on EVs. And then you had swing states like Georgia and Arizona, actually pretty much in the middle. And then red states, for the most part, lagging those blue states. But there were some outliers. So Florida and Utah actually performed best amongst the red states. And those are often wealthier folk uh, within there. So it's not purely on politics, but you know, you got to look at the wealth aspect of it. And, and what I'd say is in terms of how things will change, you bring up Texas and where my head goes to is the fact that Tesla has its gigafactory in Texas. I was actually down in downtown New York looking at the Cybertruck. They had the first uh, Cybertruck spread out across the country over the past couple of weeks. And so there were a lot of people who were truck owners who had never bought EVs before who came to take a look at the Cybertruck. And whether or not you like the design of it, and I think it is a um, unique design, I think that you could see the potential if EV continue and there are different model offerings to reach more of that mass consumer market who may not have considered an EV before. Unique design. I feel like that is just the perfect thing to get somebody listening to something on the audio format to go and actually search up what it looks like. So uh, that's everyone's next assignment to see the unique design. But pivoting actually to something that is also differing state by state is this direct-to-consumer model where selling the vehicles directly to individuals is not always allowed. And the question I want to ask is, what's the deal with dealerships? <laughs> I mean, it's like the million dollar question. I think we were talking about before with UAW and Ford and GM, another potential hurdle that they've had to kind of tackle is educating dealers and encouraging them to sell electric vehicles. There's, you could do a whole topic. My colleague, Alex Herring has a great research note on dealerships and really the additional costs they've added to this EV transition for the legacy companies. In some cases and in some states, if you're a Tesla or a Rivian, you can't actually sell to a consumer or have a showroom because it violates dealer laws. In other states, Tesla has been exempt, but other automakers like Rivian and Lucid can't sell directly to consumers through an online platform. Dealers, in the case of Ford, for example, they've been trying to reform their relationship and hold EV dealers to a higher standard. But some of those dealers have pushed back and said, these are expensive to put in charging stations or this certain dealer education. So you're seeing the automakers and the dealers tussle over new relations. 
things. But the dealers are a pretty strong, I'd say, lobbying force in Washington. So how the legacy OEMs are able to build with this partnership, I think there's also different views within the automotive space on if they're going to be a hindrance moving forward. I definitely see some of the potential issues, but maybe to flip the problem on its head, it could be an asset in terms of things like repairs, right? Tesla has had issues with customer service in terms of the repair side, while dealers historically have helped with maintenance. And so if you turn that negative asset into some reforms, the biggest issue has been around this idea of dealer markup. So we didn't get too much into it, but part of the issue for Ford and GM has also been that their upfront cost of EVs is higher than, say, Tesla. So if you go to buy a Chevy Blazer EV, which is a new, pretty good looking model from GM, originally they sold it as starting at about $45,000, but after all of like scale up issues, they priced it at about $56,000. Now that's just the MSRP. If you go into a dealer, there's something known as the dealer markup and they can make it even more expensive. What Ford is trying to do is to essentially make sure that the online pricing for EVs is what you actually end up paying for a base price when you walk in to a dealer. So again, we'll see how it changes over time, but it is another hurdle on top of maybe the labor costs, on top of the battery scaling concerns. And I think, Dana, if I could be any more clear, it's that there's a lot of issues in the way of these legacy companies that they have to tackle now at risk of falling behind not only Tesla and Rivian, but other companies like Honda, Kia, and Volvo that are interested in gaining market share in the U.S. market. So it continues to be a hotly debated topic that we'll have to watch because we don't really know which way it's going to go with the dealerships, do we? No. And, and I think if anything, they've pushed back on it more. So I don't want to sound Pollyannish that it's going to necessarily work out well. I think basically it is a reality of the U.S. policy framework that there are a lot of dealer laws at the state level. And you've seen actually advocacy groups go out and advocating for more direct sales policy provisions in places like New York, which is quite limited. And to date, there haven't been much success on that. So we'll see how that develops too. Maybe not only will there be more pressure on dealers from the automakers, but from folks in the environmental community. And if things don't don't change, maybe there'll be even increased pressure. So now let's go to the state that I grew up in, California, which has often, when I was growing up, referred to as the incubator for the rest of the country. And that's because they tend to try different laws that then have an impact on other parts of the country. And with vehicles, what I'm referring to specifically is fuel economy standards, which the California fuel economy standards we know have impacted then the fuel economy standards in more lenient states because the vehicle manufacturer essentially work towards that one car. It doesn't make sense to have multiple different cars that are emitting in different ways if you've already achieved the higher standards. So when it comes to other parts of the vehicle space, and specifically what we're talking about today are the battery and hybrids, what ways has California been an influencer, if you will, of other states in addition to fuel economy standards? Yeah, I think the two biggest ones is one, the zero emission vehicle program, which is not, you know, on top of the fuel economy standards, encouraging more battery electric vehicles, fuel cell previously, uh, and plug-in hybrids to be sold. Not only California, but what are known as the California states. So these are the states that, again, have signed on to California's policies. And then one that's been making waves over the last, I'd say, three years is basically states that sign on to what is called Advanced Clean Cars 2. So Advanced Clean Cars 2 is California using that fuel economy standards in order to build a pathway to the phase out of sales of internal combustion vehicles by 2035. Now, it doesn't mean that plug-in hybrids won't be sold. I think they essentially allow for 20% of sales in 2035 to be PHEVs at a pretty strict all-electric range minimum of about 50 miles. But other states have signed on. And Dana, you know, you grew up in California. I grew up in the California of the East, New Jersey. 
Uh, and uh, basically, New Jersey has followed a lot of that policy as well in terms of signing on to advanced clean cars too, just like California had a subsidy for electric vehicles, New Jersey does, but also beyond New Jersey, Massachusetts, uh, Maryland, and other states have signed on to advanced clean cars too, and are kind of working through the process of ratifying it. So, you know, stepping back from the bigger picture or to the bigger picture, how this ties into some of these automaker announcements, even with the delay of these new year term goals by GM and Ford, what hasn't really happened to date is more of the sticks that are coming in the future, right? We've talked a lot about IRA and the potential carrots, but automakers can't ignore the fact that we are now at the end of 2023. And in about 11 years from now, in many states in the US, um, and as more sign on, there will not be the ability to sell purely gasoline cars anymore. So California, again, started with the idea first in 2020 and went through that process. It was actually right around the presidential election that Governor Gavin Newsom indicated that he was going for it. And it took a couple of years for CARB and other policymakers to essentially write up the rules. But now that they're finalized, it's beginning to have pressure. And that goes beyond any future presidential election. California has always been willing to stick out ahead to push environmental standards higher, especially in this transportation space where they have the California waiver accessibility. So with COP28 just about to begin, and with emissions coming from the transportation sector being the largest share of emissions coming out of the U.S., how optimistic are you that the vehicle space is going to reduce its emissions and at some point not be the primary source of emissions coming from the U.S.? Yeah, it's a good question, Dan, and also is a really good plug for a piece of BNEF material that we're putting out next week. Our third zero emission vehicle fact book, which is spearheaded by uh, our team leader, Alexander O'Donovan, that will cover many of these facts in terms of emissions and you know how people should be feeling. Um, I won't bury the lead, but what I will say is that what's interesting about EVs is they are closely tied to that power sector. So the cleaner that the U.S. grid gets, the more beneficial electric vehicles are moving forward, just on a life cycle basis given the electricity efficiency over gasoline. I think we're going to get there. I think the big question of this decade is less about if the U.S. is going to make an EV transition, but one, how fast, and two, who is going to be the market leaders by the end of the decade. It's still too early to tell, and I don't think this is going to become a single Tesla-only dominated market by the end of the decade. But if GM and Ford, or not just to you know pick on them, but Toyota, Honda, fall too far behind in a kind of growing market space, they could be losing out on valuable learnings that these other automakers have already undergone. So I think we're going to get there. And I think globally, we at BNEF in our long-term EV outlook see peak emissions from road transport happening in 2029 globally. So we do have a bit of time to go. We got to build up that EV fleet over time to really start to see emissions reduction. But you'll see in the ZEV back book, not only uh, impressive charts on emissions, but also on oil demand reduction. And so that's something folks should look forward to. Great. Well, Corey, thank you very much for joining us today and talking about a wide range of issues facing the U.S. and the transition on the vehicle side. Thanks, Dana. I really appreciate uh, you having me here. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. 
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.